Amen. Have you all ever noticed that there are certain songs that it takes you back to a particular part of your spiritual journey? And it's kind of funny, I was standing off to the side over here and I was watching, and you could tell the people in the room, especially in those last several songs, who there was a major moment in their life that God used those songs in order to walk them through. In fact, that was kind of like mine and Bria's like dating worship songs going on right there. <laughs> that was a good time. I enjoyed every bit of that. So it's wonderful to be back with you all this evening. Uh, our family, we watched online this morning, and I saw that you all were in very capable hands today with Pastor Ken bringing the message this morning. And he did an amazing, amazing job with an unbelievably difficult topic. So I am grateful to God uh, that Ken had that on his heart to be able to share, and I thank you for what you shared this morning. So we begin this evening with a question. Here's the question. Why is the doctrine of justification so important? Why is the doctrine of justification so important? Now, I am going to give four everyday scenarios in order to help, I guess, package this together in a way to show that while this is a deep, deep truth of the Christian faith, it is also one of the most practical truths that you will ever encounter. So here's four different scenarios. Scenario number one, a teenage girl cries herself to sleep at night. Her boyfriend just broke up with her after dating for two months. She's been telling everybody that she loves him. He makes her feel special. He's the one. And yet she finds out that all along the way, he had another girlfriend on the side. And now everybody knows. The rumor mill at school is circulating the information. It's painting her in less than favorable light. At this point, she feels worthless, foolish, and unloved. Scenario number two, a young man stares at his Bible and he doesn't know what to say or where to go. He wants to be a good Christian, but he constantly finds himself falling short. In the past, when lustful thoughts came to mind, he would redouble his efforts and he would focus on more discipline and he would share with friends and they would say, we want to help hold you accountable, but he seems like he's gone through that cycle again and again, and now it's been years down the road, and the lustful thoughts are just as bad, if not worse, than what they were before. And here's the thought that's going through his mind. Where do you turn when all the right things haven't worked? Scenario number three. A 30-year-old husband and father of three comes back from his second tour in Afghanistan. While serving his country, he's been asked to do things that would disturb anyone's conscience. Yes, it's war. Yes, there is an enemy. Yes, there are those who are trying to kill innocent people. But whenever you take a life, you don't walk away unscathed. He gets back home and his pastor tells him that there's times that you have to stand against evil to protect those that you love. Mentally, he gets it. But emotionally and spiritually, he can't help but think, God is mad with me for what I've done. Scenario number four, stay-at-home mom now feels lost. In college, her plan was so clear. 
She would graduate top of her class, have a successful career, get married, have an awesome family. She would enjoy exotic vacations and maintain a vibrant social life. She was going to have it all. But after starting a family, she felt it's important to stay home for a number of years as her children are young. And she's been grateful for that time. But all along the way, she keeps seeing the friends she was in college with as they're working up a corporate ladder somewhere else. And at this point, she's up to her eyeballs in questions and dirty diapers. Questions like, who am I apart from being a wife and a mother? What happened to my future that I had in store? Four different people, four different scenarios, four different stages of life, all helped with the same word, justification. The teenage girl needs to see her value apart from a relationship with a guy. Justification shows her true value before God. The young man needs to see that the source of his victory is not in his ability, but in his position in Christ. Justification is the starting point for that position. The 30-year-old war veteran needs to know that God is for him and there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And justification is what explains our favorable standing and how we acquired it and how there's nothing that you can do to take that standing away. The stay-at-home mom needs to know her real identity is not in what she does, but in who she is. Justification leads to true identity in Christ. Now, if I were to stand up on a Sunday and say, for the next three weeks, we're going to talk about doctrine, there'd be people, and I know it wouldn't be you because you all, all love doctrine. I can see it in your eyes. <laughs> Amen. But there would be people who might think, that is not helpful. That's too academic in nature. Like, I need something that changes where I live. I need something that addresses what I'm going through. I need something that addresses the felt needs of my life. And sometimes we don't think that doctrine is going to do that. But here's the point. Doctrine is the foundation of belief, and belief is the basis of behavior. If you're talking about changing behavior down the road, it starts with what do you believe? And in this situation, we're coming back to this idea of justification. How we live and how we respond and how we function in everyday situations is tied back to what we truly believe and our beliefs matter. So today we're going to continue in our study of justification. And we're going to focus on the paths that people try to take in order to be right with God. That, that is, everybody has sinned. Everybody has messed up. Everybody can go and look in their past and say, I wish I would not have done that, or I wish this could be different, or could God ever forgive me of this for the future? And, and we look at all of those things, and we're trying to figure out, how can I be right with God? And humanity has a wonderful word to describe how a lot of people try to get right with God. It's called religion. Here's the essence of religion. Religion is humanity's attempt to do something to please and or appease God. That, that's what it is. So different religions will say, you do this and you'll be right with God. For example, in Judaism, a Jew is taught that if they obey the Mosaic law, that is going to make them right with God. 
In Islam, a Muslim is taught that in order for them to be right with Allah, they need to follow the five pillars of Islam. You'll also find that for Buddhists, for them to become aligned with the universal consciousness, they need to adhere to the four noble truths in the eightfold path. They, they need to do something, and if you do this, then you're going to be right with God or right with Allah or right with the universe or right with the cosmic consciousness. That is religion at its finest. And then here comes Christianity. And Christianity stands right in front of humanity and says this boldly, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing. Your best is not good enough. It can't take away what you've done. Your morality is not good enough. Your intentions are not good enough. Your church attendance is not good enough. It stands in front of humanity and says, there's nothing that you can do, but here's the good news. Jesus has done what is necessary for you to be right with God, and it is available to those who repent of their sin by placing faith in him. That's Christianity. But that is at the essence here. This is where we come back to this doctrine of justification. Justification helps us understand the importance between, here it is, listen to this, the importance between trying versus trusting. There's a lot of Christians who are still trying and trying and trying and trying, thinking that in their best efforts, it changes their standing before God. You're going to see today that's not the case we got a lot we got to cover this evening. So I invite you, go with me in your Bibles if you would. Galatians chapter number 2 will be in verses 15 through 21. I'm speaking this evening on the subject, trusting instead of trying. Trusting instead of trying. So we're going to have prayer, and we're going to be working our way through the text. I, I read the text two weeks ago when we were here. And we're going to work our way through, but we're not going to reread the text before we jump into everything tonight. But we definitely need prayer. I need prayer. I need prayer that I am not going to confuse you all by the time this evening is done. And Lord willing, you need prayer that you're not going to be confused by me by the time the evening is done. So we all need prayer at this moment. Let's go to God. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we ask that by your Spirit, using your word, would you guide us into truth this evening? God, free some people up tonight. Lord, where our beliefs are not aligned with your word, give us the courage and the submission to put our beliefs before you and say, I want what you want more than what I've always heard. God, I pray this evening that you would work deep in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So, Two weeks ago, we laid the theological framework for the doctrine of justification. Now, if you were not here and you don't know what I'm talking about, then I'm going to share a couple of thoughts with you in a moment. If you were here and did not understand what I was talking about, or if you were here and were not paying attention to what I was talking about, <laughs> and that's always a strong possibility, here is a three-minute review of what was covered two weeks ago. So justification, the basic definition, is the act of God whereby he declares the believing sinner righteous in Jesus Christ. It is God's answer to the question, how is a person made right with God? Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 says, the just or the justified or the righteous shall live by faith. 
So justification by faith, it is central to the gospel message. It is the basis of our identity in Christ. It is ground zero for what is referred to as positional truth. And we got into explaining positional truth a couple of weeks ago. Now, if you were not here for that, let me give you a little bit of a crash course again on positional truth. Positional truth declares our eternal standing. Here's that word, standing, our eternal standing, our position, our standing in Christ. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. Conditional truth, it defines our current state in the flesh. That is, we still have flesh and bones. We still have air in our bodies. We're we're still walking around on this earth. We're not yet in eternity in the presence of Christ, but this is our state. This is where we're at, but our state does not define our standing. Okay, our standing is still in Christ. It's positional. So our standing is perfect and it is permanent. Our state is imperfect and it is temporary. Praise the Lord for that. That is position versus condition. I also shared how justification and sanctification are linked together. Justification declares us righteous and holy. Sanctification makes us righteous and holy. Justification changes our standing. Sanctification changes our state. Justification is an event. Sanctification is a process. Justification is what God has done. Sanctification is what God is doing. Everybody clear? Everybody's theologians. I can see it in your eyes. Wonderful. Explain it back to me after the service is over with. All right. So now that everybody is caught up, Let's go back to what's happening in verses 15 through 21. Now, this section is a continuation of Paul's confrontation of Peter that began back in verses 11 through 14. Now, here's the basics of what's taken place. Paul confronted Peter because when Peter arrived in Antioch, he used to eat with the Gentiles, and God was using him as an agent of unification, bringing Jews and Gentiles together. But whenever this group of Judaizers who claimed to have come from James, when they arrived in Jerusalem, Peter withdrew from the Gentiles and wouldn't eat with them any longer. And the text tells us he did that because he was afraid. Now, granted, the Judaizers could not put him in prison. They couldn't arrest him. They couldn't kill him. The only thing I could do is harass him. The exact same thing that they had been doing to Paul the entire time. So whether or not it's because he did not want to lose his standing or whether or not he just did not want to be harassed, he acted hypocritically and it led a whole group of other people to act in the exact same way. That's what it says in verse 13. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. That's why Paul confronted Peter. Peter's actions were teaching people that there was still some separation between Jewish believers and Gentile believers. His actions were sending the message that Gentiles are unclean and they needed to be avoided. His actions were sending the message that God shows partiality and by doing so, he's undercutting the gospel message. So what does Paul do? He calls him out. He calls him out in front of others. Now, in verse number 15, Paul describes the shared history that he and Peter have together. Look at what it says here. It says, we are Jews 
by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. You'll notice that the word we is found four times in verses 15 through 17. And it's being used to refer to Peter and to Paul and to the other Jewish believers. And here's basically what he's saying. We as Jews of all people know what it's like to live under the law. We recognize what it's like to live with religious regulations. Now look at what he says in verse 16. Even we have believed, that is even us, Jewish believers, have believed in Christ Jesus so that we, there's that term again, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. No flesh will be justified. Gentile flesh will not be justified. Jewish flesh will not be justified. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. Here's his point. If Jewish followers of Christ cannot be saved by the law, how can a Gentile follower of Christ be saved by the law? So Paul was not using the term sinners in a behavioral sense. He's using it in a legal sense as it was defined by the Jews. Now, here's what I mean by that. The Jewish mindset of the time was that Gentiles were sinners by nature because there was no law to guide them so that they could be right with God. Okay? But in verse 16, Paul tells us that none of that matters because no person is saved apart from believing in Christ. So here's your key truth for this morning or this evening. See, I'm, I'm still on this morning. I don't know what to do when I didn't preach in the morning time. Here's your key truth for the evening. We are justified by faith in Jesus, not by keeping the law. Justified by faith in Jesus, not by keeping the law. Now, why in the world would I need to say that? I mean, we're in a church that is a strong Bible church. This is a church where people love the Word of God. They love the deeper truths of the Word of God. This is a church that's been discipled and trained well. Why in the world would I ever need to get up and to tell people we're justified by faith in Jesus, not by keeping the law? Because to this day, there might be some here, but I definitely know they're all throughout churches, all around the U.S. and around the world. There are people who believe and they teach and they advocate that people are justified by faith in Christ plus obeying the law of God. And they put both of those together. Now, they say things like this. And if I define it and I kind of share what, it, what they say, then you might be able to say, ah, I had a conversation with somebody the other day, and that's exactly what they told me. Or I might say this, and you're like, mm, I've been using that for years. It's okay to allow the Word of God to correct our beliefs. So here's what people will say. Christians need to obey the Ten Commandments to be right with God. Or they will say, Christians, they definitely need to believe the Bible, but they need to obey the Bible to be right with God. Or, or you'll get that one who comes out and they're like, well, you know what James says? Faith, with, or faith alone cannot save. It's, you, you need works as well. So you need to believe and you need to obey the Bible in order to be right with God. 
I want you to listen real closely to what I'm about to go over for the next couple of minutes. If you get this, it'll free you up. If you miss this, you will continue a cycle of thinking there's something you have to do in addition to faith in Jesus Christ. So listen closely. To add anything to faith in Christ as a way to be justified, as a way to be justified, to add anything to faith in Christ as a way to be justified is to deny the doctrine of justification. To add anything to Christ's work on the cross is to imply that his sacrifice was insufficient for your salvation. To add anything to the gospel of grace, oh listen, is to suggest that somehow sinful humanity can participate in our own salvation. That is not the gospel. We are justified before God by repenting of our sin, placing faith in Jesus plus nothing, plus nothing. While our actions are an important product of salvation, they have nothing to do with providing salvation. Nothing. Notice how clearly Paul says this in verse 16. Nevertheless, know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. So remember our definitions that we've given so far for justification. When a person is justified before God, it means that God no longer holds their sin against them. Just as though it never happened. Remember that a couple of weeks ago? Just as though it never happened. Justification is a total reversal of how it is that God sees you. Prior to being justified, we were under God's wrath. We were under God's judgment. We were declared sinners. That was your status prior to placing faith in Christ. When God justified or declared us to be in the right, listen, he chose not to hold our sin against us, remembering our sin no more. And here it is, and he imputed Christ's righteousness into our accounts. That's justification. How many of you have heard the term sin debt before? Let me see your hands. You've been in church for a while, you've heard sin debt. If you've not, let me give you a quick, quick definition of what that means. When we talk about a person's sin debt, it means that as a person lives life, they continue to sin. And those sins begin to pile up day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year. And we have this debt of sin that we could never pay ourselves. That's been referred to as a sin debt. But all too often when the gospel is presented, we're told that Jesus will forgive your sin. And here's what a lot of people hear in that moment. He will forgive me from everything I've done past tense and in their mind here here's what's happening at that moment when they repent they place faith in Jesus here, here's what's in their mind he's wiping away the sin debt that I've done I got a clean slate now before God that that's what is in that person's mind but here's now what happens they then enter a cycle of now every time they sin in the future they think that it just robbed them of their standing and their position before God. So here's what they do. They sin, 
And then they go back and they, they repent and they ask God's forgiveness again. And they sin and they ask God's forgiveness again. And they sin and they ask God's forgiveness again. And they go through this cycle over and over and over again to the point they don't feel like they ever have sure standing as long as they're sinning still. Now here's another way the gospel is presented. Sometimes people say, Jesus will forgive your sin debt past, present, and future. That's wonderful. That's a whole lot closer to what takes place. So here, here's what that person now sees. They see, I got a mound of sin. This is my sin debt. Jesus wipes the slate clean, and therefore all of my sin, even in the future, he's already forgiven me of that sin. And that is biblical. Amen. But, but watch this. Now that the slate is clean, they feel like they have to live a life of constantly proving their love for God because they need to build spiritual equity before their king. They, they feel like, man, I've, just, I've been a wretched person. I've done all of these things to show God how much I love him. Now I have to do this, and I have to add this, and I have to add this. And here's what happens. It enters a person into a constant cycle of feeling like I have to do more and do more and do more. Otherwise, I'll never be able to show my love for God. And then there's the gospel of grace. Here's what the gospel of grace teaches. You got a sin debt. And Jesus forgave your sin debt, past, present, and future. He wiped the slate clean. But instead of the slate being left clean, he now imputed the righteousness of Christ into your accounts. Now all of the blessings of Christ, the, the actions of Christ, all, all, that, all that comes with him is now in your spiritual account. You're not having to work and work and work to show, oh God, I'm serious about this and I need some type of spiritual equity. Basically, you have now become flush in Jesus Christ. Your, your spiritual account is on full because of what he has done for you. It's the other side of justification. Prior to salvation, we owed a sin debt we could never pay. At salvation, we gained a righteousness we could never earn. Justification is about more than the sin he took. It's also about the righteousness he gave. All of the blessings of Christ are deposited into our spiritual account. The righteousness of Christ is credited to you and I. The Father sees you through the lens of Christ. That's why Ephesians 1 tells us we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. We have, past tense. It goes on to say we have received our inheritance, past tense. It says God has richly lavished his grace upon us, past tense. Jesus did not say, now that I got you out of that bind, you don't go back and do that again. Instead, he says, now that you have been forgiven and justified. Here it is, listen. Welcome to your Father's kingdom. All that he has is now yours. That's a different position when somebody understands it. That's justification. Now, when we understand what Christ has done for us, here's what changes. We now see our value differently before God. We were singing it tonight. How could a God love us like that? Amazing love, how can it be that my king would die for me? 
that's a song built on a truth of justification. When, when we understand that, our identity now changes. Who I was is no longer who I am. When we understand that, we begin to operate about what we have in Christ instead of what we do for Christ. The Christian life flows out of our position in Christ, and it reckons upon the fact that we are now rightly related to him. No amount of law-keeping can do that because the problem was deeper than our actions. Humanity was born with a sin nature. Sin is not just what we do. sin's a part of who we were. Consequently, no amount of law-keeping can go back and justify a person because the law cannot change our nature. The law can reveal the sin. It just couldn't remove the sin. So now we're at a place where because of what Christ has done, not only has it been revealed, but it has been removed and his righteousness has been imputed to us. All of this is happening because of what Christ has done. So think about this for just a moment. All of a sudden, biblical terminology makes completely new sense. Because it was in our sin nature prior to Christ, guess what you need? You need a new nature. Here it is. You need to be born again. Uh-oh, that sounds biblical. That sounds like something Jesus was talking about. Listen, the terminology makes perfect sense when you understand what it was like prior to Christ. You, you couldn't get rid of that sin nature by yourself, but once a person has placed faith in Jesus, they're now given a new nature. They're now in Christ. You're a new creation. Your identity has changed. Your position has changed. Your standing has changed. You're no longer bound by the sins of your past. You are free to be who God made you to be. When was the last time you woke up on a Tuesday? Let's throw Tuesday out. When was the last time you woke up on a Tuesday and all of a sudden the first thought in your mind is today I can be everything God made me to be? Do you know what happens a lot of Tuesdays? We wake up with all the junk we were still dealing with on Monday. And we're just trying to make it through. We're not talking about walking and living in victory. We're just like, God help me get to the weekend. <laughs> it sounds funny, but... What a horrible goal for life when he has done all that he has done so that we can live out our created potential in Christ. And we leave it sitting out there untouched because sometimes those deeper truths are harder to dig into. and It's just easier to talk about surface level things. But these are the truths that once they sink in, that's where it sets the person free. When you see yourself the way God sees you, it changes what you see in the mirror. Changes how you live. Changes how you respond to people. It changes how you walk through adversity. When you think of everything that he has done to bring you into right relationship with him, it should change your life forever. Three times in Galatians 2.16, Paul states that justification only happens through faith in Christ and not by the law. In other words, we are made right with God by trusting, not trying. So if that's the case, then what does James 2.17 mean when it says faith, if it has no works, is dead being itself? 
Well, listen to the way Martin Luther described this. This is a little bit longer quote, but man, he did a great job of capturing this. Quote, The question is asked, how can justification take place without the works of the law, even though James says faith without works is dead? The works of the law are works done without faith in grace by the law, which forces them to be done through fear or the enticing promise of temporal advantages. But faith of, our works of faith are those done in the spirit of liberty, purely out of love to God. And they can be done only by those who are justified by faith. Now listen to this incredible capture of an illustration. An ape can cleverly imitate the actions of humans, but he is not a human. If he became a human, it would undoubtedly be not by virtue of the works which he has imitated of man, but by virtue of something else, namely by the act of God. Then, by having been made human, he would perform the works of humans in proper fashion. Paul does not say that faith is without its characteristic works, but that faith justifies without the works of the law. Therefore, justification does not require the works of the law, but it does require a living faith which performs its work. Now, if you're saying, Paul, that was entirely too much for I guess, 6.58 on a Sunday evening. Here's the condensed version. Luther said this as well. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. In other words, if you're talking about how are you justified, faith alone. But when it's faith alone, it will be manifested in works beyond that. Now look back at what it says in verse 17. It's crucial to understand that we, in verse 17, refers to Jewish Christians. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves, that is, Jewish Christians, have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister of sin? Now, here's the argument that Paul is making. If believers are saved by keeping the law of Moses and must continue to keep the law in order to maintain their salvation... Then before the Judaizers arrived in Antioch, Peter and Barnabas and Paul and all the other Jewish believers had already fallen back into the category of sinners because they were eating with Gentile Christians. So if we are sinners for eating with Gentiles, then Jesus must have been a minister of sin by encouraging his followers to join with them in unity. John chapter 17, 21 through 23. Now, what is his response? He just says in verse 17, may it never be. He says that, that can't be the case. Jesus is not a minister of sin by encouraging unity in the church. The Judaizers were promoting sin by dividing the church. Verse 18, for if I rebuild what I once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. If Paul tried to rebuild the system of legalism after destroying it through the gospel of grace then he would be the transgressor, not Christ. He would be the hypocrite, just like Peter and Barnabas and the other Jewish believers, because he had abandoned grace in order to go back into the law. So look at what it says in verse 19. Paul tells us he could never go back. For through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. There is no going back for Paul. Once you drink from the fountain of grace, you can never go back to the waters of the law. It doesn't happen. 
So that now leaves us with several important questions as we close. How are you living today in response to the teachings of justification by faith? Is it actually changing how you live? So here's my first question. Have I been saved by the grace of God? Only the gospel of grace is the only gospel that saves. Now, you start here, have I been saved by the grace of God? Ask questions like, am I trusting in myself for my salvation or my morality for my salvation or my church membership or my baptism for my salvation? I actually had a lady, this is years ago in Las Vegas, I had a lady who I was talking to about salvation. And here's the exact quote. I said, have you ever placed faith in Jesus and become a follower of Jesus Christ? And here's her response to me. She says, I am okay with God because my granddad worked for the Salvation Army. Did you make that link? Her understanding of how I'm right with God was not only by family heritage, but by like a couple of generations up because they worked for a Christian organization. Okay, the point here is she's not trusting in the gospel of grace, she's trusting in the fact her granddad worked at the Salvation Army. That was enough to make her right with God. So you got to stop and ask the question, first of all, have I been saved by the gospel of grace? If you are trusting in anything other than Jesus alone, you've not been saved by the gospel of grace. Number two, am I trying to mix law and grace? Law means I must do something to be right with God. Grace means that by faith, I believe that God has done everything for me to be right with him. Salvation is in Jesus and in him alone. Now, I am not saying for a moment that after a person places faith in Christ, that they go through and they're saying, God, by your spirit, help me to live out the teachings of your word. But here's, the, here's what I'm trying to say. Even if you fail every second at every single teaching that you find in Scripture, that doesn't change your standing before God. That will be a part of your sanctification process with God. So here's what happens. When the Bible says pray without ceasing, and you wake up one day and you're like, it's been four days since I've prayed. Apparently I just failed that one. That's where you say, God, help me to become aware of this. May I stay in a spirit of prayer? Thank you for the forgiveness that I have in Christ. And God, by your spirit, prompt me because I want to be a person who is constantly in the spirit of prayer. And you move on with your life. It doesn't change your standing, but it will impact your state if you don't take the time to address those things along the way. Here's the next one. Am I walking in freedom? Freedom is not a license to sin. It is an opportunity to enjoy Jesus and become the person he made you to be. That is a wonderful concept. When, when somebody is experiencing freedom, listen, it's not only freedom to do, it's also freedom not to do. And that might free you more up on the other side right there. Here's some things that I'm just, I am so excited about. Oh, I, I've, I've had an opportunity over the years to be able to teach and to train pastors and to do mission trips in countries all around the world. 
And a lot of times I'll go and I'll get a chance to speak with maybe some of the local clergy, whether or not it might be some imams out of Islam or whether or not it's some rabbis out of Judaism. And as they begin to tell me what life is like around, like what they go through, I cannot tell you how many times the first thought in my mind is, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Jesus, for what I have in the gospel. Because every bit of that structure is I have to do, I have to do, I have to do more, I have to do better. I didn't do great there, I need to do better, I need to do, I need to do. And I'm, I, as I hear it, it's overwhelming to me. And then I look at the fact that Jesus has already done everything that is necessary for us to be right with God. It'll make you cherish the gospel message. We are made right with God by trusting in Jesus plus nothing the gospel now as we close out I'm going to share the same gospel presentation that I have shared many many times before because there might be some people here even this evening like I'm not I don't know if I've fully embraced the gospel based on what you've shared tonight here's the good news in a nutshell humanity was created for relationship with God that's why you're here when everybody in college is talking about let's discover the purpose of life, you just raise your hand like, I, I know that. We've been created for relationship with God. But here's what the Bible tells us. Our sins separated us from that relationship. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Our sin has separated us from that relationship. It's not the amount of sin. It's not the depth of sin. It is the nature of sin. Sin separates. The Bible teaches there's nothing that we could do to be right with God ourselves. But the good news is Jesus did what we could never do. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death on the cross. He died on the cross not for his sins, for the sins of the world. He rose from the dead three days later that we might have life. A dead Savior cannot give you life. And here it is. And he gives eternal life, a reconciled relationship to those who will repent of their sin by placing faith in Jesus Christ. It's right there for the person to receive. That's, that's the gospel. That's the good news. It's saying you're not here by accident. What you did, whatever that might be, it's not enough to separate you from God if you're willing to repent of your sin by placing faith in Christ. So I'm going to have a word of prayer. I'm going to lead some people. I know this is, this is the home crowd tonight. But I'm going to lead in a very simple prayer of repentance because there might be people in the room tonight that you're like, I want to make sure I'm right with God. So if you would, just bow your heads with me for just a moment. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Tonight, if, if you've heard this message and there's something inside of you that's saying, I'm not sure if I'm right with God, but I want to be, then I want to encourage you tonight, don't turn away that little voice that's speaking into your head. I, I share with people all the time, Praying a prayer, just reciting words, is not going to save you. Jesus has done everything that's necessary for your salvation. What you're doing in that moment 
is you're simply agreeing with God that he is right and that you were wrong. That's it. it is, it's turning from sin by placing faith in Christ. So if you desire to know this evening that you are right with God, that your sin debt has been removed, and that you can experience the righteousness of Christ being put into your life, then I'm going to lead in a simple prayer, and this is between you and God. It would simply be this. God, I know that I've sinned, and I know my sin has separated me from you. I recognize there's nothing that I could do to make things right. But I want to be right with you. I believe that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin. And he rose from the dead that I might have life. As best I know how, I turn from my sin by placing faith in Jesus. Would you save me? Would you give me eternal life? Head still bowed, eyes still closed for just a moment. I'm not going to ask people to come forward. I'm not going to do a standard come forward invitation at the end. But I would love to be able to rejoice with you. If you prayed with me tonight, wherever you might be, for just a moment, would you lift your hand wherever you might be for just a moment? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may put them down. After the service is over with, myself and some of the other pastors are still going to be standing along in the front, and we would love to be able to talk with you about what it looks like to walk in newness of life. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for what you continue to do. God, may you work deeply in the hearts of those who came to know you tonight. And Lord, we will thank you for all that you continue to do. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful rest of your night. Looking forward to seeing you this next week.